We're in this series um, on the life of David, and the series is called After My Own Heart. We chose that title because that is a, that's a title that God said about this man, David. He looked at him and he said, that guy, David, he is a man after my own heart, meaning like he, he gets me. And so we've been kind of, we've been looking at uh, we've been looking at that. And last week we talked about David kind of breaking onto the scene after his victory over this Philistine champion, this giant named Goliath. So Goliath was about nine foot nine. David is not nine foot nine. And he has this incredible victory, not over Goliath, but also over the Philistine army. Um, and, and this week, we're going to kind of look at the aftermath of that and kind of what's the ripple effect in David's life after that amazing victory. And it, it, when we started this series, we were, we were talking about two characters primarily, Saul, who's the current king of Israel, and David, who's the anointed king of Israel. And, and we've been kind of saying all along, if you really want a clear picture on David's story, you kind of need to get the backstory in Saul's life um, as well. Um, and, and we're also going to see something kind of unique in this chapter that will carry forward as we continue to look at David's life. And it's this friendship with this guy, Jonathan. And Jonathan is Saul's son. And David and Jonathan have this amazing friendship that kind of starts here in this chapter. And um, probably next month when we get together, we'll, we'll see kind of how that um, really starts to uh, really starts to kind of go forward and grow. Let me, let me do this before we go any further into the text. Let me just uh, let's stop and pray and uh, ask God to help us uh, tonight. Um, God, I I love you, and I want to ask um, for something that always feels really um, strange to me. Um, God, I'm, I'm asking that you um, through me for whatever reason that you have me here, uh, God, would that you'd speak to us. And um, God, I, I want to ask that you would do what it is that only you can do. Um, and, and, and that is to illuminate in our hearts and in our minds, and God, in our very spirit, um, God, just the truth of who you are. And God, I'm praying tonight that that truth would encourage people in the room who need encouragement. God, I'm praying that it would convict people in the room who need um, conviction. God, I'm praying that it would bring freedom to people in the room, God, who are desperate for freedom. Um, God, I know that you are very specific in what you have to say to us tonight. And God, you're very specific in who you have brought here tonight. God, you're very specific in the passage of scripture that we're going to be in tonight. So God, I believe all those things. I know all those things to be true. Um, so God, would you please just move um, and speak to us tonight? Holy Spirit, would you come? And God, would you just fill this, this place with your presence? Um, Jesus, I pray that you are magnified, made much of, that you are on full on display here uh, for the rest of our time tonight. And I love you, and it's in your name I pray. Amen. First Samuel chapter 18, um, as we look through uh, the life of David, and we will start with verse 1. So, again, after the, um, this is after the, the, the battle with Goliath, after David's victory there, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. So again, Jonathan, Saul's son, 
becomes really close to David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to home to his family. So if you remember, so David was a shepherd boy. He's, he's this shepherd boy, and, and uh, he was tending sheep for his father, Jesse. And so what David would do is he would kind of go back and forth. He was in Saul's service where he would go and he would play music for Saul. And David is a skilled musician. He's kind of like this singer-songwriter guy, and so he's a skilled musician. He'd play this music for Saul. It was very soothing and calming to King Saul. Uh, and, but David would kind of go back and forth. So he's kind of bivocational there. He's a shepherd and uh, also kind of songwriter. But now Saul decides he's going to keep David with him full-time and kind of employ him full-time. And Jonathan made a covenant, verse 3, with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And whatever missions Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army, and this pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Verse 6, and when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, and with timbrels and lyres, and they danced and they sang, and this is the song that they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Saul has a thousand Instagram followers, David has 10,000 Instagram followers. That's kind of how this, how this relates to us modern day, which is sad. Verse 8, Saul was very angry because this refrain displeased him greatly. This is, this is great how Saul is whining here. He says, they have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So now Saul has this kind of insane jealousy towards David. You can kind of see how how this is going. He's like, I got my eye on you now, David, verse 10. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him. And this is actually the most shocking part of the whole verse. Twice. Homeboy stood there twice. A guy threw a spear at him twice. That's only crazy to me. I'll give you one shot. If you don't hit me, you'll never see me again. But he's twice he's there. Um, Saul was afraid of David, which is ironic because Saul's the one throwing spears. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men and David led the troops in their campaigns. And in everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And Saul said to David, here is my older daughter Merib. I will give her to you in the marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. So, when he's, when, what's happening here, um, there, there is a spirit from God, because that can be kind of an odd exchange there. It's a, kind of an odd passage for us, but there's a spirit from God that brings disruption and chaos that has an evil result. So this is not a possession of an evil spirit from God. 
It's, 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 a, it's a spirit of God that brings disruption and chaos that has an evil result in the life of Saul, but it's not a possession of an evil spirit from God. And, and I think the evil things that we're going to start to see kind of come the, to the surface in Saul, like jealousy and violence, um, are things that have really, they've kind of been there all along. He doesn't just kind of flip a switch and become a psycho. Um, he has these circumstances that really make the things that were there beneath the surface this whole time just kind of bubble up and, and, and start to boil over. And we see that in us too, right? There are, there are certain instances, especially conflict, especially tension, that bring things out of us. We're like, man, where did that come from? And the truth is they've always kind of been there. Like I always tell my wife, I was like, you know, I don't think I ever had a temper until we got married. I don't think I ever had a temper until we had kids. But that's really not true. I just did, I was just extremely selfish before I got married or before we had kids. And I never, ever did anything that would become close to difficult or cause tension in my life. And so, of course, I have no reason to lose my temper because I just do whatever I want. Well, now marriage comes in and you have to lay your life down for this other person. It can kind of be tough. And then these three little kids come around and they have the same idea. So it, it's more of like a revealer of what's really inside of you and that's what we're seeing in Saul. And if you remember when we talked about Saul, Saul is the, is the people's choice. The people said, we want a king. God said, I'm your king. And they said, that's not good enough. We want, we want a king. And so they choose Saul based predominantly on how tall he was and how good looking he was. And so he's the people's choice. Popularity then becomes this idol for Saul. Popularity is this thing that Saul worships. And this is really where the problem begins for Saul because he gets addicted to the praise of people. And the mood of Saul, we're going to see, is really contingent on whether or not Saul is celebrated or affirmed. And it's his addiction to approval and popularity that really sets Saul up. Now, you'd think that being a king, you, you, you get so much love and praise that you'd get enough and that you'd be okay. But, but here's the thing. It will never be enough. If you're addicted to the praise and to the approval of other people, it will never be enough. It's, it's like Chinese food. You eat it. And you're like, okay, I'm kind of full. But then, you know, a half hour later, we're like, why am I hungry again? It's just like that. It's that same feeling, that same experience and sensation in your life too. And it's like that for Saul. It's like this kind of black hole that can't be filled. And maybe you know people like that, right? You know people who are there, they're very needy. Like they just need to be affirmed. They need to be accepted. They need to hear it. And so you say, okay. And so you give it to them, you give it to them. And then it's just never, never enough. And it just wears you out. I could be like that sometimes. Um, and and, and, and so, so Saul is never celebrated enough, and now it's even worse because David is getting the kind of attention that Saul was used to getting. They used to only sing songs about me. Now there's songs about David, and they're even better songs than my songs, and he can't stand it. And I think if we were, were really honest here, we would come around to the reality that we're really more like Saul than we'd like to admit. Saul is not a uniquely evil person. Saul's living out his life on this big stage and it's just more public. But what's happening with Saul is what can happen to any of us. We can become dependent and we can live dependent on human approval for our worth and our value and it controls us. We need it. We crave it. It's never enough. And it completely controls us. It controls what we do. It controls where we go. It controls who we go with. It controls our attitudes. It controls our demeanor. 
And that same thing is happening with Saul here. I, I, I think the major difference that we're going to see between Saul and David is this. And this is really kind of like the linchpin for the whole talk tonight. David grasped the love of God and Saul did not. Like David like, had his arms around how much God loved him. And Saul was so consumed with how much people loved him that he didn't have any room for the love of God. David understood the love of God that Saul was never able to receive. Saul's story starts with the praise of people in the streets. That's where we, we see Saul. That's where we find Saul. David's story starts with him praising God with sheep. David is on the hillside in solitude. He's contemplating and meditating and being saturated in the love of God. Um, When we started with David's story, we talked about this idea of obscurity, of being kind of unknown and being kind of unnoticed, at least in human terms. And, and, and we said, you know, that really is a blessing in your life. Like, we really think like, okay, when I get to the next thing, when I get to the next thing, when I have the next thing, when the next phase of my life starts, I just have to kind of get through this phase of my life where really nobody notices me or nobody knows what's going on. And, and some of you, you're just in a mad dash to get through whatever your time of obscurity might be. And we talked about like, that really is a blessing. This, these were kind of like the golden days for David when it was just him and his instrument and the sheep and he's singing songs and writing songs and singing praise to, to, to God um, be, because it allowed David to really have this intense time to just focus on God. And David tasted the love of God in a way that Saul never did. And, and, and again, that's really why we're doing this, this study in the life of David because there's something unique that he understands about the heart of God. In Psalm 139, if you want to flip over there to the right, um, this is a song that David writes, Psalm 139. Um, and we're going to see this, this really played out, this, this beautiful song that he writes. Um, and it just illustrates this point of how well that David knows that God loves him and knows him in an intimate way. Not just in a, in a uh, like mental ascension, but no, there's a real relationship. Like God intimately, is intimately acquainted with me. In Psalm 139, again, this is a song that David wrote, um, verse one. You've searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise and you perceive my thoughts from afar. It's, it's personal with David. He's like, God, you, you know who I am. Verse, verse three, you discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Like nothing escapes your notice about my life, God. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. He dances, this is kind of, he's like, I can't even wrap my head around how much you know about me and how much you love me. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Like, where can I go where you're not there with me? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. The thing about David that we are gonna see in his life is that he's gonna live a life where it really does kind of test this psalm. Where it really does kind of say like, okay, are those words? Because it's, it's, it, 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 at one point, it's going to seem like David does flee from the presence of God. We've all been there. If you're a follower, if you're a follower of Jesus, you, we've all been there. We've been in these moments where we've run. 
We've wandered. Like, there's a song that says, like, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. We've all, we've all been there. We know it. David has these moments where it, it's going to look like, is this really the same guy who, who wrote all these love songs to God? Because look at what he's doing now. It looks like he doesn't even know who God is. It looks like he doesn't even know what the law of God is. It will seem that David really does make his bed in the depths, in Sheol, and in hell. But he lives long enough to see that even in those moments, and some of you, you've experienced this in your story already, that even in those moments of your wandering, if it looks like I don't even belong to God, even in those moments, God is still faithful. Look at verse 9. He says, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light will become night around me, even the darkness will, be not, will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. In verse 14, David understood that the Lord delighted in him before he was even born. This point, by the way, is huge. This is a massive, massive thought, not just for David, but for all of us. He says, he, he said, I know that I was fearfully set apart. I understand that you delighted in me before I was even born. There's a big difference between, between someone who understands that the Lord delights in you before you were born and God delighting in you because of what you do. David understood, God, you delight in me. You love me simply because I exist. Not because of what I do. This is massive for David. It's massive for us. Look at verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. Verse 18, I love, he says, when, when at the end, I'm still with you. You, in the dark night of my soul, when I awake, you, I'm still with you. You are still with me. David spent time sitting around just thinking how awesome it was that God had him on his mind. David is consumed with that thought. We are consumed with who's thinking about me. Who's thinking about me? I just posted something. Who recognized it? Who liked it? Who commented on it? Right? Some of you, you're in relationships, or some of you, you want to be in relationships. Are they thinking about me? They haven't texted me in like 15 minutes. I wonder what's happening. Like, we are consumed with who is thinking about us. David was consumed that God was thinking about him. God thinks about me. God delights in me. So, so let's put this kind of in our kitchen, because like I said, we're, we're all like, we're all like Saul. We all kind of have this ego. We all go through these moments of jealousy, right? We are taught at a very young age that our value is contingent on what we're able to achieve or produce. And I think as we grow older, it changes a little bit and it changes to we are valued based on what we um, 
produce or what we possess. And our identity is found in what we produce, what we do, or what we possess, what we have. Or maybe sometimes who we have, which is really scary because we treat people like they are objects that we have for our own glorification. Which is really twisted and we all do that on some level. We, it, we, we have learned and we learn this in a really young age. If, if we work hard, you'll be blessed. If you make bad decisions, um, you will not be loved. If it, each, each of us learn early on that how we're supposed to please people and we get approval from them. If, if I do what somebody likes, they approve of me. If I don't, they don't approve of me. And we learn that really young. And it just gets bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper and deeper the older that we get. Some of you, you're on a, you're on a quest for a spouse, which I would affirm, go for it. Um, or maybe even a date, got to start somewhere. That's good too, right? And uh, I hate to break this to you, but you will never find um, the perfect person. Um, but even the person who makes you think that they're perfect, they will never be able to tell you enough that they, that they love you. Um, if, if, this is how, if this is what you live, they will, let, they will never fulfill this desire completely. Um, which doesn't mean that you'll still, you won't put that pressure on them because you will. But if you live for the approval and for the love of, of, of people, you'll never hear it um, enough. I, I, my wife's not here tonight, but she, she'd chuckle at this. Um, every year on my birthday, I always tell her, Look, please do not make like a big deal out of my birthday. I mean, for crying out loud, I'm not, you know, six. I don't need a bounce house. Um, we're going to, it's okay. You know, like don't make a big deal on my birthday. And, um, and she'll believe me and not make a big deal. And I was like, do you even love me? <laughs> like, seriously, like nothing, like you couldn't do, like, I mean, there's no party, no kind of nothing. And it's, it's twisted and it's her cross to bear. But, um, but we are, we're like that, right? Like, um, no, I don't need to hear that you love me, but do you love me? Like, we, that's really kind of, that's, that's how we are. As long as you get your sense of identity or worth in the approval of something or someone else other than the love of God in your own way, you will end up like King Saul. If you're looking for it in anyone else or in anything else, in your own way, you will end up like King Saul. It doesn't mean you're necessarily gonna throw a spear at somebody. You could, but it does mean that you will end up tormented like this, enslaved like this. One of the reasons I I think we struggle with being under the love of God or at least kind of having our identity, who we really are, rooted um, in the love of God over us, it's because we can't just give it like a one-time look and be like, God loves me, that's great, and then walk away and go pursue all these other things or pursue our identity and other things. That's not what David did. David like stared at it. The, the, he meditated on, on who God was. He was saturated and, and steeped in it. He was consumed with it. We are bombarded by so many messages that tell us you get your value here. You get your worth here. If you want approval, do this. If you want to be loved, do this. If you want to be accepted, do this. If you want people to be for you and behind you, you need to do this. You need to wear this. You need to talk like this. You need to act like this. You need to know about this. And we believe it because we hear it all day long. And one day a week, maybe two days a week, we'll sit in a room like this or maybe even a bigger room 
And somebody will get up and they'll say things like this, like, no, God loves you. Your identity is found in his love over you. It's not about what you produce or what you possess, but it's who has worked on your behalf and who possesses you. That's where your identity is found. And we'll sit there and we'll sit in it and we're like, okay, that's good. And then we'll leave and we're like, wow, we need to go to lunch. And then on our way to lunch, we have these messages again come towards us. But what David was, David was absolutely consumed with this reality and this truth that God loved him. And he grasped it so well and he kept it in front of him and he reminded himself of it always. There's a, a, a scholar who has this line. He says, one of the great tragedies of our life is that we keep forgetting who we are. This is so key for us. And the question that I have for you is do you know how loved you are by God? And I'm not just talking about like a mental, like, oh yeah, I can kind of mentally agree with that. No, I'm saying, do you know? Do you know how loved you are by God? And wherever you are, like on the spectrum of a relationship with God, meaning, meaning you could be, you could have walked in the room tonight and you're like, I have no idea or no interest in who God is or relationship with him. Or, or you would be on the whole under end and be like, he is the absolute love of my life. And everywhere in between, do you know how loved you are by God? Because understanding how loved you are and finding your identity in that love not based on what you've done, but based on his love and grace. That is the entire ballgame. That's it. Um, there are, of course, so many remarkable things about Jesus, but I think one of the most is that he grasped the love of his father in a way that we do not. And that's what I believe enabled him to live a life that we could never live. That was it. In Matthew chapter 3, and you can, you can turn there if you want. Matthew chapter 3, there's this um, brief moment in the, in the life of Jesus. And I think it's where we see that reality, that Jesus just, he just knew how much his father loved him. Um, and we see that loud, loud and clear in Matthew chapter 3. Um, Jesus is, is, is 30 years old, right? So he grew up with his dad, the carpenter, construction worker. And uh, for the first 30 years of his life, that was what Jesus did. So he came as savior of the world and spent the first 30 years making furniture um, and building houses and stuff like that with his dad. But he's 30 years old. Um, For the first time, he's recognized as who he truly is. His cousin, um, who's a guy named John the the Baptist because he baptized people, um, he recognizes Jesus and he calls him out. He says, that's him. That is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, you have to remember at this time in the life of Jesus, he hasn't, he hasn't done any miracles. He hasn't healed anyone. He hasn't given any great sermons. He hasn't really done anything before any of those things. He comes out of the water in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. He gets baptized by John the Baptist. And listen to what he says in, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. This is my beloved son, some versions say, with whom or in whom I am well pleased. Now, Jesus had not done a single of the things that he would eventually do, but Jesus was fully convinced of his father's voice. 
And if you look through the life of Jesus, and if you're not familiar, I just encourage you, just read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John in the scriptures and look at the life of Jesus because he's always talking about his dependency, his abiding with, his connectivity with his Father. And that's the thing, that Jesus just, he trusted the voice of the Father in a way that no one else before or no one else since had ever done. That's why every major character in, or hero in the scripture is always pointing forward to a better version of themselves who is Jesus. Jesus is the true and better David. We've seen that time and time again as we've we looked at him. He fully believed his father. So when the pronouncement is made, Jesus believes this and he lives a life that is defined by this and unlike the rest of us, Jesus never forgets. He never forgets the voice of the father over his love. You are my beloved. In, in you I am well pleased. He's always aware of how completely loved he is and how his father delights in him. And his ministry comes from the overflow of that. He's so solid and so secure in how much his father loves him. And everything he does flows out of that. Now look, there's a, the language is very important of what the father says over the son. Because there's a big difference between this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and this is my beloved son by whom I am well pleased. Because if God the Father would have said by whom, that would have meant that he was pleased by the works of Jesus. This is my beloved son, and when he does the things I want him to do, that's when I love him. That's when I'm pleased with him. But he accepted him before all the things that he would do, including the cross and the resurrection. And Jesus is never trying to prove himself to the Father. He's never trying to prove himself to the crowds. He's never trying to prove himself to the disciples. He's never trying to prove himself to the haters. Crowds are always the same, right? And in your life, if you spend your life trying to prove yourself to the crowds, whatever the crowd looks like for you, it's always gonna be the same. You do something cool, you do something they like, they're gonna like you. You do something that they don't like, they're not gonna like you. We all went through high school. We've already experienced that. We already kind of know what that is. And now you just have like a more kind of complicated, what feels like maybe like a more grown-up version of that. But it's still that. And it'll always be that. Because crowds are the same in the time of Jesus and in the time of us today. Think about your relationships. Think about friendships that maybe have disintegrated because of that, right? They had an expectation of you. You didn't meet that expectation. Now there's fallout. There are people that you, at one point, they were your best friends. Now you don't even talk to them. And it's because of something like this. But Jesus fully understands this and he has security and identity rooted in this revelation of the Father's love for him. And the moment that this happens, it's very interesting what happens in chapter four um, because it tells us that the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. So Jesus is baptized, chapter three. He has this pronouncement of the Father's love over him. And then chapter four, it says that the Spirit is gonna take him into the wilderness. To do what? Have a party? No, to be tempted. To be tempted by who? to be tempted by Satan, to be tempted and tested by the accuser. And if you, if you know the story, if not, I would just encourage you to kind of read through it. It's extremely interesting. Um, Jesus is in the wilderness for, for 40 days, hasn't eaten. And so Satan says to him, look, I know you're really hungry. And if you are the son of God, you could take those stones right there and you could turn them into bread. And, and, and he says, look, if uh, there's a tall building over here and he takes him to the top of the building, he's like, if you are the son of God, you could throw yourself off and God would send angels down to get you. And then, he, and, then he, and then he takes him up and he shows him the whole world and he says, um, you know, if you would bow down to me, he's like, you can have all this. And every time 
God answers him with scripture, but every time Satan comes at him, he says, if you are the son of God, if, if, if you really are who the father just said that you are, if you really are. This moment that they have in the wilderness, it's not just about devil worship. They challenge the very identity of Jesus. Satan says to him over and over again, prove your value, prove your worth. And this at its core is the same temptation that you and I face all the time where we have to prove our worth outside of or opposed to the voice of God in our lives that says that we are beloved. The voice of God over you says you are loved and I'm well pleased in you. And the voice of Satan, the voice of the accuser says, if, if you really are valuable, pursue this. If you really have worth, like if you're really loved, pursue this. Or if you really want to know like what real approval and acceptance and love, joy is, if you really want to know, pursue this. The same line of talking that happened in the garden, he, he tries here with Jesus. Because when we are tempted and when we sin, what we're saying is that this behavior, this activity, this attitude, it holds more value, meaning that it is a more true picture of my identity than the voice of God in my life that tells me that he loves me. So I'd rather listen to the voice of the accuser. I'd rather listen to the deceiver and believe him over the voice of God in my life that says, I love you just because of who you are. And so this is what I have for you. If you, if you are who God says you are, prove it. How, how many of us spend our whole lives just trying to prove that we are somebody to somebody? Or trying to prove that we are something to somebody? Trying to find someone to accept us or to celebrate us? Trying, because like Saul, we keep striving for the approval of people. We hope that somehow... Somehow the right person will love us and the right person will approve of us and the right person will accept us and that will fill this hole. If we just haven't found the right person yet. We haven't just done the right thing yet. We haven't consumed the right thing yet. We haven't just been to the right place yet. When I move to Seattle, that'll do it. When I move to Portland, that'll do it. When I move to San Diego, whatever, right? Those are all the people, places that people tend to want to go. Like when I'm finally there, that'll fill this hole because God can't fill it and Gilbert. But when you forget how much the Father loves you, or if you right now don't know how much he loves you, you do crazy things. You go to extreme measures like Saul. And we need to know who we are and how much we are loved, and, and that those things do not depend on your performance. Because as long as you are not convinced that God loves you because of what Jesus has done, you will not be able to grow in your relationship with him. And, and you will not be able to grow in your love for him. You can do ministry. You can do like great things. But if you do not get this, if you do not get this, you, there's, a, there's a place where it says, look, many will come and say, Lord, Lord, and not know me. Understanding how cherished you are is not depending on you getting it right. It depends on the right one who has said over you, I love you. Last story in Luke chapter 14. Um, there is the story of this father who gives, um, he gives an inheritance, he gives money and resources to his son, like in an extravagant way, in a super gracious way. He, he knows his son is gonna go and take all this loot and he's gonna make an absolute mess out of things. The father knows this. 
But the father gives it to him anyway because he, he loves his son. And he lets him go out and not only ruin his own life, but ruin the, the reputation of the father on his own dime. And if you, if you know the story, by the end of the story, the prodigal son, he spent all this money. And when the money runs out, the fun runs out. When the fun runs out, the friends run out. And so he has no money. He has no friends. Um, he's got to get a job. So he goes to work on this pig farm. And he's there feeding the pigs. And he's so hungry. He's like, I'm so starving. that I, 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 I want to eat like what the pigs are eating now. And then there's, a, there's, a, there's this really kind of intense moment that by the end of the story, the, the, this prodigal son, as he's known, he comes to know the love of the father um, that, that his elder son, the, the, his brother, w- will never get. Now, this story is not a you can sin your way to salvation story. This is not a like, hey, go out and go crazy and go wild because you'll experience more of the love of the father that way. I, I, people who hear my story and hear my testimony and they hear just like all the stuff that I was in, it was such a complete train wreck and just what a mess I was. And now, well, you're a pastor guy, so it obviously kind of worked out okay. So it's not like I can't go and be wild and then like kind of come back and get all, all fixed. And plus now, because of the story that you have, it seems like you really like have a passion and a love for God that, you know, maybe if I don't do those things, I'll never have and that is just such garbage. I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you how much of my life and how many regrets I have, I wish I could get in a, if I could get in a time machine right now and go back and undo it, I would do it in a nanosecond. I cannot explain to you how many thoughts and memories and just things from a past life still keep me awake at night. I'm talking about things that happened literally 20 years ago that still will haunt me. If I didn't have to go through that garbage, I'd, I would do anything to not have to do that again. Do I have an understanding of the grace of God? I really do, and I'm so thankful for it. But the, but the pain that I caused myself, this moment that this prodigal son goes through, where you're wasting everything and you're literally in filth and in slop, starving. I don't want to do that again. The, 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 the turning point of this story is the prodigal son remembers what it was like to be in his father's house and that's why he takes these steps home. There's a phrase in the, right in the middle of that story that says, when he came to himself, which means... When the son remembered who he was, who he had been, and who he was supposed to become. When he remembered who he was. There, when, when people come to Jesus, they, they a lot of times will describe it as coming home, even if they've never been home before. But they'll say, I just feel like I'm home. There's, there's a moment where you are aware of who you are and who you're supposed to become. There's a suspicion in you that gets kind of lit up by the Spirit of God that, that you are known, that you're loved with a deep and unconditional love. And I, I don't always think it's as simple as like repeating a prayer or walking forward or whatever. I, maybe that's part of it. I don't really know. But I do know that there's a moment 
where you have this just awareness that there really is a great author and he's writing my story in such a way that I interact with him um, that I know that I'm loved by him and that I belong with him and that my life is to be lived by him. It's not about the proper steps. It's not about the proper steps that the son takes towards home because the son doesn't even have the right motives other than I'm starving out here. The only thing that seems to be triggered, right, is he has this remembrance of who he is and that's what allows him to take this, the step towards home. It's about coming awake to the love of the, of the Father and we need to wake up to the love of God in the way that David was awake to it. David did wicked things and we're gonna see in his life, he does these things you, would, you just can't even fathom. But David understood how much God loved him and his identity was absolutely entrenched in that. And, and, and some of you, I feel like I have to say this because some of you in the room, you think well, like, okay, well, this whole line of thinking really kind of gets us to abuse grace, doesn't it? And if you don't understand grace and how beautiful it is and how costly it was to Christ and how deserving you are to receive it, then yes, you will abuse it. So I would say if you abuse grace, then you really don't get it in the first place because you you really don't see how beautiful the cross of Christ is because all you see is yourself and all you see is, is, is your selfish desires and selfish fulfillment so you really don't get grace. Your identity cannot be rooted in something that you hold with such low esteem. So here, here's what I mean by that. Like a lot of us in the room, like our identity is really attached to something and if I just kind of looked at your social media profile or maybe talked to you for like 30 minutes or whatever, like I could see like, oh, I know what's really important to them. And I know like their identity is rooted in that. Maybe it's something that, a, a place you perform, maybe it's a job you have, maybe it's a relationship you're in, maybe it's something that you did in the past or something that you want to do in the future. But, but I know, like I know what it is that your identity is rooted in because you hold it with really high esteem. You care about it a ton. So if your identity is really rooted in the grace of God, you will not hold it with such low esteem that you'll use it as this thing where like, I can go do whatever I want and I'll just throw grace on top of it and it's all good. That tells me you just, you really don't get it because understanding how much God loves you empowers you to do what is right, not to continue in sin. The prodigal didn't say, I am so loved by my father. I think I'll stay away from home and see what other mess I can get in. No, he remembered, my father is extravagant in his love towards me. I remember my sonship. I remember what it is to be a child of my father. The height and the depth of grace, the dimensions of grace, it makes me tremble. It doesn't make me daydream about what I can try to get away with. Understanding how deeply you are loved by God is everything, and it is a revelation that only he can give. So I'm aware that for this message to make any sense to some of you or to land with any of you, something supernatural has to happen in your life. I, I can describe this love of God for you. We can sing songs about it. I could do a puppet show up here for you. But but it's not the same as it being revealed to you. Um, all right, I want to share a, a, a story, and I really, this is kind of crazy. This story, 
well, let me just say something first. So I, I, when I was studying this afternoon, um, I was really like kind of wrestling at this point in the message because I have this story that I want to share. And I was like, God, do you want me to share this story? Because, you know, there's parts of it where like, I don't know. Like, it's my story. And I don't, I don't know if it's really a story I should share at 710. I don't know if this is something that you just did in my life or is this something you want me to share? And so I came after Jed was done with, with practice. And I came and I was like, dude, let me just kind of lay this out. Like, what do you think about this? And I shared the story with him. And I said, and I've just been praying. And I just said, God, when I get to this point in the message, if you want me to say something, just make it clear, interrupt me, and, uh, and, and I'll do it. And, it's, and Jed said to me, he's like, hey, um, before practice today, I was praying for you, and I prayed that God would give you something extra, that God would interrupt your message, like God, that God would interrupt kind of like what you had planned to say, and if he had something else for you to say, that he'd make it really clear. And I was like, Okay, all right, I think that that seems like, okay, I'm going to say it. So I want to tell you the story, um, and I want to, I'm giving it to you in a descriptive way, not in a prescriptive way, meaning I'm just, I'm telling you the story as a description of what God can do, not as a prescription for what God is necessarily going to do in your life. Um, September of last year, I was in this very difficult, dry like wilderness season with God. And if you've ever been in a season like that, there's, you know, all the things that kind of get associated with it. So there are things like doubt um, and things like shame that creeps in and uh, the voice of guilt that's over you. And uh, it's just a very kind of like cold hearted time and very confusing time for me. And I just felt like it was like spiraling and spiraling and spiraling and getting more and more difficult to pray and go to God. And I felt like I'm not hearing from God. I don't know if you've ever been in a moment where you felt like I'm praying right now and I'm pretty sure my words are going nowhere. Like I'm literally talking to myself. I don't know if you've ever felt like that. Like words are not making it out of the room. Um, And it was a very... uh, inconvenient time um, because around the same time I was just I was getting ready to do this kind of missions trip to Ethiopia and to Africa and going to doing this thing this church thing in London there was a conversation that I was having with the elders at this church and uh, uh, pastors at this church about becoming one of the lead pastors here and I'm having thoughts that are like intense like should you should you be a pastor like should you really because you do this and because this is in your life and God is getting like dimmer and dimmer and smaller and it gets darker and darker and it moves from not only like should you really be a pastor but are you even a Christian? And I'm like fighting like crazy during this time and I don't, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to do. Um, one, one of the pastors here, Tim, he has this phrase and he says, look, when you're in these periods of drought and in these like wilderness periods, instead of waiting for like the, the rainfall, like we want these big like moments, like God just show up and just whoosh, like just dump out on me and that'll like fix the drought. Um, he'll say, instead of waiting for that, he said, dig a well, dig a well, go, go deeper, dig a, dig a well, go deeper. And so I just start to dig and I, um, I get back into journaling. I hadn't done it in a while, and so I'm trying to write, and then my journal sucks. I'm, like, writing phrases that don't make sense. I got, like, you know, I'll have, like, a whole page, and I've got, like, the date 
and then nothing on it. And um, my prayer life is just really, really struggling. I can't, like, I can't seem to pray for, like, more than, like, three minutes. And two minutes of that prayer is, like, me, like, fighting the voice of, like, shame and guilt and, like, accusations in there. And I just have zero clarity. I'm trying to w- read the Word of God. It, and it, like, is not connecting. Um, and I still am, like, have to do all this pastor stuff. So I feel more and more like a fraud. Um, and further and further away from God. I feel like his voice is smaller and smaller and smaller in my, in my life. Um, and I'm just like battling, battling. And then um, a few weeks ago, I go to this conference. And uh, the whole reason I went to this conference, quite honestly, is because there were a couple pastor friends of mine that were going to be there. And, and a couple of them were speaking at it. And I wanted to hear them speak. And I also wanted them to see me at this conference. Um, and so I go, and there's uh, the last speaker of the last session um, kind of does their message, and it's great. And we're, the message is all about kind of like the movement of the Holy Spirit. And, and I, so I'm like leaning in, and I was like, okay, this is, this is what I'm praying about. I'm praying about the Spirit of God and filling me up and hearing from God and all that. And that's what the whole message is about. And at the end, the person who gives the message, the talk, says, okay, we're going to pray we're going to pray for the Holy Spirit. And I was like, okay. Um, I'm not really comfortable necessarily in this environment. There's like a thousand people in this room and they're from all different kind of faith traditions and backgrounds. And so there, there quite honestly gets to be kind of like a lot of distractions in the room. And the person who's leading the prayer says, look, if the Spirit of God shows up, that's great. If not, you know, then we'll all go to dinner early. And um, so I'm kind of like sitting on the, on the aisle and... Um, and I really, I want to engage in prayer in this moment because I'm, I'm still right in the thick of this thing with God. Like, am I yours? Like, am I safe with you? Am I, am I loved by you? Um, and so I'm standing kind of on the aisle and uh, there's a lot of people in the room and like a lot of movement and people praying and some people are going forward for prayer and there's just kind of all this stuff going and I am like ADD like crazy and I'm just like super distracted and I'm just thinking this is a real mess. Like I really want this moment like just to talk to God. Like I, I don't even ask for anything in particular, you know, like I don't like, hey, light my head on fire. Let me know you're there. I'm not, I'm not asking for anything crazy. I just like, I just want to be able to pray and talk to God. And, and I'd love to hear from you, God. That's really it. And so um, because I'm like really distracted, I just put my, um, my face in my hands like this. And I, and I start to pray like this. And I get like just gut level honest with God. Like, God, I'm, I'm really like tired and sick of this. And even now, like this is how twisted and like broken my brain is and my heart is. Like I'm praying right now in this room and there's a part of me that wants people to notice me praying. But God, I just confess that. Like I'm, just, I'm telling you every single thing that's in my heart and on my mind and I'm giving you everything right now. I just need to know that I'm safe with you. I just need to know that I'm your. I'm not even asking for like, hey, make my ministry greater or make me a better preacher or make me a better husband or dad or any of these things. I'm not asking for anything. I'm asking for what I asked for when I first came to know. I'm like, like, do you love me? I just gotta know. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm not praying any theologically robust or deep prayer. I'm just like aching in my heart and I just, I'm like wrestling with God. 
and my, and my hands and this guy, um, this guy comes up and puts his arm around me and I never pick up my head. I've just, I'm like sitting here like this. And uh, I, because, and, and my first thought is like, oh great, like this, I'm like trying to not be distracted and like this is like a huge distraction. And a, a thought I really have is like, this must be like, one of the pastors that I know. He just saw me out here praying and now, you know, he's gonna come put his arm around me and he's gonna pray for me or whatever. But I don't, I don't like stop. I'm just kind of like with God. I'm just like trying to, I'm trying to focus and say true things to God and just like wrestle this answer out of him. Um, and this guy puts his arm around me and my head's down and he's praying something. I can't really I can't really hear what he's praying and he can't, he can't hear what I'm praying because I'm like praying into my hands. Um, and the guy, total stranger, the guy pulls me close and he gets right in my ear and he says, God wants you to know that he loves you. And he just says it like over and over again. He's like, he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. And I don't have a whole lot of moments like this. And this is why I wasn't sure I wanted to tell the story or not. I don't have a whole lot of moments of that. But I'm telling you, like, I, I felt it here. And I, it, just, it just broke me. It just absolutely broke me. And I mean, I don't know, like, again, not prescriptive. I don't know, like, if that's how God talks. But that's how God spoke to me. And, and God, he just spoke to my very soul. And whatever whatever doubt and whatever burden and whatever just kind of like fog and like darkness that I was in since that moment has been totally lifted. Now, I'm, I'm, it's, I, I've still like had temptation. I've still like had all the stuff, right? But I do not doubt um, that I am loved by God. And, and here's the thing. When I, when I left there, I mean, I, I was like, okay, that's like as legit and as real of a moment with God I think maybe I've ever had. Like I... I just know what I experienced, and, but, but still, there's a part of me that's like, wait, am I nuts? Like, was that, like, what was that? Like, and, and there's a cynicism that kind of happens. I, I totally get that. And I, so I called one of my friends who's a pastor, and, and I gave him the whole rundown, kind of told the whole story, and he just said, he said, Paul, why would God not want to tell you that he loves you? you you've been praying it since, like, September, You've been praying, like, for that answer. Like, you wanted to hear that. Like, why would God, why would God not want you to hear that? You know, because I was thinking, that's a pretty generic thing to, like, say to someone. I mean, you're at, like, a Christian conference, pastor's thing, whatever. I mean, like, just walking around and being like, hey, God loves you. God loves you. Like, that's a fairly, like, generic thing. And you could. You could just write it off. You're like, oh, that's kind of, I can explain that away, whatever. But the thing is, like, that was specifically what I had asked God for. It's like, God, I need this. Like David needed this. Like the prodigal son needed to know that. I need to know that I am loved by you. I want to spend just a little bit of time in prayer. The guys are going to come back up and and just close us out in worship tonight. Um, But I wanted to spend a little bit of time in, in, in prayer tonight. And I've got kind of three things that I'd love for you to be praying around your tables about. And I realize that you might not know all the people around your table, and this is where this could get awkward, but I just so believe in the power of prayer, especially now. Um, 
And, and I just so believe that this is such an important moment for us to really meditate on what we saw out of God's word. But there's three things to pray. One, it could be that you in the room tonight, that you need to pray um, kind of a prayer like what I had. God, I want to know, um, I want to know that you love me. I want to know the love of the Father. And if you're brave enough um, to pray that around the table, then I would just encourage you to, if you're like, this is too weird, the, this, the guy's telling weird stories, now I'm out. Like, I get it too. If you leave, I'm, I won't be offended. Um, or, or maybe you just don't feel comfortable praying it out loud in front of people, and I get that too. But it could be that some people in the room, that's, a, that's the exact prayer that you have. Like, God, I just really want to know. I just really want to know that I'm loved by you. Um, the second thing might be uh, that God, I want to, I, I, or I do know, and I do experience that love, I, and I know it in very real ways, and I experience it in very real ways. And so, maybe your prayer around the table is that God, I just want to thank you. I want to thank you for these very real ways that I experience your love. Maybe even today, like God, you provided this, or you showed up here, or you gave me this peace in this moment, or you've provided in this way. And again, God, I just I know your love in a very real in powerful way, and I've experienced in a real way. And so, God, right now, I just want to say thank you for this because I, I, I know that you love me, and this is how I know it. Um, and then the third thing would be um, that you pray, God, I want to show your love too. And maybe there's somebody in your life that's been either very difficult for you to love um, or, or somebody who just that, that you love who just does not know the love of God. Um, and so you would pray, God, I, I want to be able to show them how much you love them. And, and say them by name. Maybe they're at the table. That'd make it even better. Um, but say them by name. So three things, real quick. Just We're just going to take just a, a few moments. So just please get right into this. But prayer on your table. Like, God, I, I, I want to know. I want to know that you love me. I want to know the love of the Father. Um, two, God, I know I experience that love. And I just want to say thank you. And then lastly, God, there's people in my life and I want them to know how much uh, you love them. And so I just pray, I pray that you give me a way to show them love.